I was going to be teaching from Mark 2, so if you have your Bible, please turn there. And before he comes up, will you please stand with me if you're able? We're going to read through this passage before he comes up. Mark 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. You remain standing and we'll pray together. And I wanted to invite you just to <clears throat> become aware of the idea that Jesus says he walks in the midst of his church, that Jesus is present here in a very real and supernatural and tangible way. His healing power is among us. His love is working through you and his people. If there's desires and requests, needs that you've come in the door with, I just want to encourage you, if that's you, just open your hands in a very simple, maybe discreet way as a symbol that you are submitting something, that thing, to Jesus right now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd speak to us in the way that only you can, beyond the words of a person. And we ask that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to obey and to follow you, that we'd be fully alive in the place where you've called us to be. And we ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there's a, uh, if you remember, there was a song called Juicy by Biggie Smalls. And it starts with, it was all a dream. And then he talks about, I used to live this way, but now I'm living this way. Like the best line of the song is that he says, um, birthdays was the worst days, but now we're sipping champagne when we're Thursday. <laughs> and uh, you bought a building, so it'll be a while before you can actually afford champagne, but um, it does feel like a dream. Like I was at the very first gathering at the Swedish Hall in 2009 for Reality San Francisco. And the very first gathering that was there was, you could feel there was an energy, there was something that, was, that God was doing. And now look at you, you have a building in the middle of a bustling city. You have a physical place for people to come and meet. That's an incredible privilege. 
And with any privilege comes an incredible responsibility. A responsibility to belong to and to build a community of healing. And maybe like never, never before in this city is that needed like it is now. I read an article in the SF Examiner last week titled, Pandemic Loneliness is Leading to Hallucinations for Some. It was written by a therapist in the local area, Bay Area ther therapists. The subtitle is Bay Area Women Are Experiencing Similar Mental Distress to Those in Jail. The times of isolation and the times that, uh, of anxiety that we've found ourselves in uh, have, the article goes on to say, created kinds of uh, neuroses and mental conditions that uh, are, are really severe. Disconnection. The author ends the article by saying, we underestimate the healing value that intimate platonic friendships play in our lives and COVID has underscored their importance with the easing of restrictions during this phase of the pandemic. Let's embrace our need for others, look at this, and our commitment to fellowship and communion that may be the most protective measure we can take for our mental health. Harvard Business Review ran an article recently talking about the increase in the decrease of employee uh, engagement, stating that much of the low energy in the workplace has to do with what they call workplace loneliness. The sense that even if I had a particular need, I'm not sure that the people around me that I work with or those around me that I associate with could actually know what that need is or that they would care. So I wonder what happens inside of you when I say that more than ever we need to build communities of healing or a community where healing happens. For some of you, it just creates stress. It's like one more thing that you got to do. For some of us, it generates adrenaline because that's how you're used to generating momentum in life, right? In your work or uh, as a high performer. You feel it in your body. But for some of us, it just creates apathy and cynicism, like you've lived in survival mode for so long that you just don't have space for more hustle and one more thing around building community. And I don't believe that more hustle and more stress and more striving is what Jesus would want us to walk away with today. I think Jesus would want us to create a healing community from a different kind of energy. Mark 2 describes a miraculous healing that takes place in the midst of a community group or in the midst of a home, a living room. And if there's a message that a once paralyzed man who's been healed and his friends who brought him to Jesus would want us to walk away with, I wonder what that would be. We've swam in waters of evangelicalism for a long time, many of us. And the commentaries and the sermons that I've read around this passage um, show themes like this. They say that I think maybe forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. That's the dominant message that is here for us. Another would say, well, we need to be the kind of friends who take others to Jesus no matter what the, the barriers are. And those are logical and sound ideas coming from this text. And I think they're also very cerebral. They're also left-brained approach to theology. I think that if we're going to put ourselves uh, in this place where we can receive what the real message is, we have to put ourselves in the story. So 
I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if you were there in this first century home the day this paralyzed man is lowered through the roof. And if it helps you to close your eyes to gain more of the story, I'm going to describe it for you in just a moment. Imagine that you are crammed in this small home in a village called Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and maybe you're in this home. There's like 40 or 50 people crammed inside. You can smell dirt. You can smell sweat. You smell the smell of lots of people crammed into a small area. You see people in the doorway, people in the window, people outside, all wanting to hear more from this rabbi who's gaining popularity. You're listening to this rabbi named Jesus talk about the laws of Moses and the Old Testament prophets. And for you, life is not easy in first century Israel. There's so much poverty, so much sickness that you see around you, and so much suffocating rules of religion of your day from the Pharisees. But these words from this rabbi hit you much differently. They seem like fresh springs of water to your dry and weary soul as you sit there and listen. And the more you listen, the more you gain a sense of anticipation. You have this sense that anything could happen at any given moment with this guy. What else do you feel as you hear him? Rumor has it that just before this moment, he healed a man with leprosy. So you begin to think to yourself, if he could heal a man with leprosy, what could he do for me in my situation? And be honest with yourself right now. What is it that you would most want him to do for you in your situation? Would you name that? So just then, you hear some noise on the side of the house where the staircase leads to the roof. The walls on the roof are thinly made of dried mud and branches, so you can hear everything. You can hear footsteps and you hear voices, the voices of men. And you try to listen intently to Jesus in this dimly lit room, but from above you can see a light opening in the ceiling. And it seems like the roof is starting to crackle, starting to cave in, some dust, some branches falling around you. And so you look down to shield your eyes from the falling dirt. And then you look up again and you see a hole being made in the ceiling. The tiles are being removed and you see four men on the roof, maybe a woman standing next to them. They're peering down through the top. And one of them says, Rabbi, please I saw what you did for the leper on the road this morning. My friend here on this mat has been paralyzed since he was a child, and he has no hope but you. Please do for him what you did to the leper. If you're willing, we know that you can heal him. Now imagine you are this man. Imagine what it would be like to have been paralyzed from youth. For some of you, you don't have to imagine you have four friends, and at least one of them has come to you at some point before this and has said, hey, look it, I know your condition. I see the desperation in your life, and I know a guy. I think he can help you, and we want to take you to him. Man, to have friends like that, to be loved like that is rare. 
And you hate to be a burden to anyone, so your instinct is to say no. You don't want to be carried by people to some place because you know it's going to be somewhat of a burden, but desperate times call for desperate measures, and so you decide to go with them. And once you arrive there, guess what? The house is packed. There's no way in. Isn't that how life goes? But then one of your friends is so gangster, he just says, let's take him up to the stairs, to the roof. We'll open it up and we'll lower him through the top. And you're reluctant because you're, you don't want to be the obstacle or the object of every eye in the room, but you're also desperate for hope. So you say, let's do it. And so they begin to carry you up the side of the stairs to the roof, and then they start tearing up the clay roof tiles. They're all in, and you're about to go in. And slowly they begin to lower you down by rope, and you can feel the eyes of everyone in the room on you. It seems like an eternity. And then a couple of men grab you and grab the rope and lower you and your mat to the floor, and there you are, sitting face-to-face with this rabbi named Jesus. And he looks somewhat surprised. And he locks eyes on you. And as you look into the eyes of Jesus, what do you see? I imagine you'd see compassion. I imagine you'd see power. I imagine you'd see authority. He smiles at you, and his smile makes you feel like he's welcoming you home. And just then, your gaze is interrupted. He looks away from you. You've forgotten that there's a whole crowd of people in the room standing inside and outside the house, and you sense a tension like this is a critical moment. You see the religious leaders outside waiting for him to make one wrong move. And slowly, Jesus bends down and again looks back at you, and he's at eye level as you sit there on the floor, and again, he flashes a smile at you. And here's what you think to yourself, man, the very ailment that I have, this thing that I think makes me unattractive, this thing that I think makes me feel ugly, is the very thing that is drawing me to him. It's the very thing that makes him want to get close to me. He's attracted to that weakness. He's attracted to the thing that I'm embarrassed about, right? And then he looks up at your friends and he flashes a smile at them like he's proud of them. He's not mad. They just made a hole in the roof. But he's proud of them. They're true friends. And that's when Jesus looks back at you and says something that shocks everyone in the room. And it still shocks you when you think back on it. He says in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, even though you came for healing, you can't help but start weeping. And you don't even know why. You just start weeping. You sense a healing happening in your soul. It feels like being reunited with a long-lost friend, someone who's always wanting to fight for your highest good. Friends like that are rare. You feel like a child who was lost, but now you're safely home. 
And that's when the unthinkable happens. See, you hear whispers outside at the window, and at first you don't know where they're coming from or who they're coming from, but now it's clear it's coming from these religious leaders, and they look through the window with eyes of intense anger. They say out loud in verse 7, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knows in his spirit that this is what they're thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to you, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So you get up, you take your mat, and you walk out in full view of all the other people, and it amazes everyone, and they all praise God, and they all say, hey, look, we've never seen anything like this. So what's the message that you think that you would have walked away with if you were this man or friends with this man? You'd be overwhelmed that you could walk at all, first of all. But beyond that, there's one thing that Jesus says he wants the people to know that day. One thing that he says uh, is very clear, I want you to know, and it's in verse 10. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And yesterday, as I was sitting with this text in the morning, I was just thinking about this idea of concept of authority and how it is that Jesus wanted me to relate to him in that way. And I felt the message for me was, Al, relax in my healing authority. Relax in my healing authority. You see, if you're going to create a healing community, friends, here in San Francisco, you'll need to learn to relax in Jesus' healing authority. There's three powerful and slightly paradoxical words in that little phrase, relax in my healing authority. The one is relax, two is healing, and third is authority. It's kind of what, big word here, antinomy. It means holding separate ideas in the same sentence. It's hard to relax when authority's in the room. We want to rebel against authority, right? But what if there is a kind of authority that you can actually not just rebel in? What if there's an authority that you want to rest in? I just flew back from London. I flew um, Virgin Atlantic. Man, it's the best. Shout out to Virgin Atlantic. I'm not mad at you if you upgrade me just for this shout out here, the next flight I'm on. And it's the kind of, they, they, they have a certain authority. We want you to turn your phone off. We want you to buckle your seatbelt, this and that and the other. And you know what? They treat you so good that you're just ready to do it. And you're like, hey, everybody should listen. Don't mess this up. This is a good thing we got going. What if the authority of Jesus is so good that you can relax in it? Now, the word relax feels foreign to modern people and high performers like you all. It almost feels wrong in a city like San Francisco. you got a lot going on. 
When this man is lowered down in front of Jesus, he's immobile. He's paralyzed. He may be seated outwardly, but it doesn't mean he's relaxed inwardly. And yet there's nothing more he can do physically to heal himself. He's at the end of his resources. And how many of you know that sometimes Jesus, for whatever reason, allows you to come to the end of your resources so you learn how to relax in his authority? Relax in my healing authority. Healing. We don't often know how we feel about Jesus' power to heal, do we? I mean, you hear stories about Jesus' ability to heal. You might even experience it for yourselves. But we also deal with doubt. We've also prayed prayers of healing, and we haven't seen the thing happen like we wanted it to. In the last month, I've heard two powerful stories of healing from two different people that I know and I trust and I respect. One of them was from this stage. So if you were to be honest right now, where is it that you would want healing from Jesus? Go ahead and just name that. Go ahead and name that to Jesus right now. Or who is it that you would want to receive healing? And that even as you say that, maybe doubt arises. Why don't you just go ahead and name that? Why don't you go ahead and name just Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Relax in my healing authority. Authority. We live in what's called the age of the therapeutic self, where follow your heart is the dominant philosophy of life. It's mixed in with the water. It's in every movie that we watch. And so, therefore, any authority outside yourself is offensive. But Jesus leaves no question. Even to the religious leaders, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's a Hebrew term describing deity. The Son of God enthroned as King. This is the gospel message, and it's not a popular one. In Jesus' day, it's a political one, actually. The reason why it was good news, though, is Jesus is saying, I'm not just the king of Rome, I'm the king of the world, and I'm the kind of king that wants to bring healing to you physically and bring healing to your soul spiritually from the curse that it caused you to be disconnected from me. But this news is also offensive. Because if this king has all authority, as he said, then he's looking for all my allegiance. There's a difference between relating to Jesus as having authority and relating to Jesus as a groupie. You see, the groupies hang on for as long as the good times are rolling, as long as the bread is coming, as long as the wine is flowing. But when the, the, the words of difficulty comes along, Jesus looks at them and they say, man, these words are hard. I'm out. And Jesus actually doesn't even condemn them. He actually says, I understand. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to leave too? And sometimes I, I want to say yes. Sometimes life is hard. How many of you know life is hard sometimes? And faith is not easy. Allegiance to Jesus causes me to die to myself in ways I do not like. But then like the disciples, I look at Jesus and I say, I've come to experience you. I've come to hear you. I've come to know you. And even though I might be tempted to leave, where would I go? I've come to believe that you have the words of life. So I guess I'm in it. And that's allegiance, right? 
See, the more we learn to relax in Jesus' authority, the more we'll create a healing community. And here's a couple of reasons why. Three reasons why that will happen. One, it'll become a community of vulnerability as I relax in Jesus' authority. I learned to create a community of vulnerability around me. See, self-preservation is that fear within me that thinks no one's going to understand my struggles. I'm going to keep it to myself. What if no one understands me? What if they don't understand what I'm dealing with? So therefore, I don't share my struggles. I don't share my uh, my, my addictions, my fears, my joys, my dreams, my hopes. I'm afraid of being exposed. I'm afraid of being humiliated. What if I'm rejected? And I withhold because of three reasons. Self-preservation, the power within it, is all about, is there something I'm afraid of losing? Is there something I need to prove? Or is there something I'm trying to hide? That's self-preservation. But vulnerability, on the other hand, creates trust. Vulnerability creates trust, but it will always cost you. Brene Brown says, vulnerability is the emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. This paralyzed man is totally exposed. The thing that he thinks makes him deep, like lesser of a human is totally exposed. His safety and his secrets are totally exposed. He creates safety, though, by his vulnerability, and his friends are there to pick him up and literally say, this is what we see in you. This is who we believe you could be. This is the way that we believe Jesus could heal you. We want to be a part of the solution. That's, man, that is powerful. We need that. You might not have that. You might be grieving that right now. And I'm, I'm, I understand. Pray that Jesus gives you that kind of community, that, those kind of friends. But you know what? Pray that Jesus helps you to become that for others. I just returned from London, and as I said, I was with an amazing small community of Jesus followers who have created an incredible household of faith. And since they've been meeting, one woman has been stabilized in her depression. Another has worked through abuse, years of abuse, the secrecy of it. Another's been healing from ministry burnout. Another's been healing from addiction. And they're all deeply embedded in the lives of one another. And yet they still have their irritations. They still question the motives of one another. They still have hard conversations. How do they do it though? They have a central ingredient that holds them together. Jesus has all authority, and we're willing to create a community of vulnerability where we can be honest with each other and yet pull out the best of one another. That's rare, man. But lives are being changed in the midst of it. Depending on your culture, depending even on your gender, it's especially humbling to be carried by others or to reach in and carry someone else. On top of that, this man is being slowly lowered down in front of a crowd of people. It's incredibly vulnerable. Brene Brown, again, says in a talk she gave to several hundred military special forces in 2014, can you give me a single example of courage that you've witnessed? She's talking to these soldiers, and she says that you've witnessed in another soldier or experienced in your own life that didn't require experiencing vulnerability? Silence crickets. Finally, a young man speaks up. He says, no, ma'am. Three tours? 
I can't think of a single act of courage that didn't require managing massive vulnerability. And just like the therapist prescribes in the SF article, this man embraces his need for others and his friends embrace him and his need. Sometimes we carry others, sometimes we'll need to be carried ourselves. The more we learn to relax in Jesus' authority, the more we'll create a healing community because it will be a community of vulnerability. But secondly, it'll be a community where we're learning to have a bulletproof identity. See, the inner narrative of who I am is often the first line of attack for the enemy. But with just a couple of words, Jesus is bulletproofing this man's identity. The first way he does it is by calling him son in verse 6. He bends down and he calls him son. And when we're experiencing affliction, when we're going through hard times, it's so easy to imagine. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's really easy for me to imagine that God is pulling away from me. When I'm going through times of pain and difficulty, it's easy to assume that maybe God is judging me. God's pulled away from me. But Jesus gently reminds him, no matter what you're experiencing, as my apprentice in allegiance to me, I call you daughter, I call you son. Being called son or daughter in that culture was incredibly intimate. It's like my grandma calling me mijo when nobody else does in the world. It's magic. It makes me feel like I'm home. David Benner says, you see, here's the thing. Neither knowing God nor knowing self can progress very far unless it begins with a knowledge of how deeply loved we are by God. Until we dare to believe that nothing can separate me from God's love, nothing that I do or could do or fail to do, or anything that could be done or has been done by anyone else to me, then we remain in the elementary grades of the school of Christian spiritual transformation. Look at this. He says, genuine transformation requires vulnerability. There it is. It's not the fact of being loved unconditionally that's life-changing. It's the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. That's risky. The second thing Jesus says about this man's identity, first he calls him son, secondly he calls him forgiven. St. Ignatius of Loyola says that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And you see what happens when I don't trust that God wants my deepest happiness, therefore I obey him through allegiance to him, I end up trusting something else to get me through life. And as image of bearers of God, our lives belong to God. If Jesus is king, the son of man, and has all authority, then we owe a debt to him for believing and behaving in ways contrary to his commands. And not just because we've broken the rules, but because we've broken the heart of the king. But by Jesus saying, you're forgiven, he's saying, I'm going to absorb the cost of all of your debt. That's why in verse 6, the religious leaders think within themselves that Jesus is blaspheming. Blasphemy was to take upon yourself the rights of God. In other words, they saw Jesus' action as tantamount to being a claim to deity. 
And he's claiming that all sins are against him. And he's claiming that he's the one with all authority and only authority to pay that debt. And so he says, you're forgiven. Some of you, well, if you ever had student loans in your life, um, I don't mean to bring up a sore spot, but you know what it's like to have that looming debt over you. It's so terrible. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you, you know what it's like to have that debt. And it actually creates kind of an identity, right? Like, I'm in debt. But if you've ever worked hard for a long period of time and worked hard to pay it off, and finally you can write the check for the last bill and send it off, imagine the elation you feel as you are no longer in debt. What's your new identity? You are debt-free. And Jesus tells this man, you have a new identity. You are debt-free. That's why on the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. It's paid in full. So Jesus says, no longer do I call you servant. I now call you friend. I call you son. And son, right now in this very moment, you are debt-free. Now here's the question. This man has not yet verbally repented. Jesus saw his friend's faith and he forgives the paralyzed man. How is this working? Jesus, it shows in chapter 8, he could actually understand intuitively the motives of the heart of the religious leaders around there. That means that Jesus has probably perceived in the paralytic a heart attitude of repentance And even though it wasn't articulated, it's incredibly encouraging to us because Jesus is so tender, so sensitive, and so willing to give grace that he responds to the inner attitude, the inner cry of the man's heart. It means you don't have to jump through the right hoops. You don't have to come through and go through a bunch of different steps. You don't have to say this incantation and the right words in the right way. Jesus knows the cry of your heart that says, I want to be free of this. I want to be cleansed of this. I want to turn from this. Will you please forgive me? We don't have to just say the right things the right way to be forgiven. You just have to have the heart of dependence and the desire to get near him. And he reads your heart and he brings you in. He is aggressive in granting you forgiveness. That's amazing grace. And then thirdly and lastly, the more we learn to relax in Jesus' authority, the more we'll create a vulnerable community, bulletproof identity, and lastly, prayerful expectancy. Man, the way these friends come in, they come in hot, right? They're like, hey, we're bringing you up. We're going to take you through the roof. We don't know what's going to happen, but we believe something's going to happen. We don't know what he's going to do, but believe he's going to do something. And they take him in. Jesus doesn't even mind that the friends are wrecking the house. He's rewarding them for it. They're asking and seeking and knocking and like, hey, we're here. We know you know our need, but we need you to do something, please. And it reminds us of Hebrews 4 that says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, he's torn the roof off, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of them, the same testings we do, yet he without sin, 
So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive mercy and will find grace to help us in our time of need. As I mentioned, in the last month, I've heard a couple of incredible stories of healing. One, a CEO of a company that I work with being brought back from the dead in Mexico. And another of a father whose son, friend was healed of, a, of an issue that he couldn't speak. We don't always know what God is going to do. But here's the thing. Jesus addresses both the spiritual need, but he's also very interested in your physical need. He's not like, hey, your sins are forgiven. Go and be well. No, your sins are forgiven. He addresses both. I'll share why in a minute. He addresses both because he's interested in healing the whole person. He cares for the physical need. So maybe it's no accident that you are in this city where there's incredible physical need. That your church building is situated in a place where there is physical needs all around you to be met. Jesus is interested in healing the whole person because he's preparing us for the day that he is going to heal all things at the resurrection. When the spiritual and the physical will be fully and forever restored. And until then, we have a responsibility to belong to and to build a healing community. And so maybe you're here today and you're in need of physical healing. Please come forward to receive prayer. There's going to be people who will pray for you on both sides of this stage. People who will be like these friends in this story are ready to enter into the throne of grace and tear off the, tear off the roof if it need be and pray with you and for you. Maybe you need to be healed of shame or guilt. And you need a time of confession and repentance. Your identity as a beloved son or daughter has been shaken. Jesus heals both the body and the soul. Of course, Jesus teaches that sickness is not necessarily the result of personal sin, and yet common sense shows us the mind and the body and the spirit, they're all bound together. A lot of times our physical wasting and weakness is due to something deep, internal, some anxiety or guilt that we've been carrying, and that's what Jesus wants to heal you of as well. James 5 indicates that the sick person should look for both medicine and spiritual forgiveness that strengthens the spiritual and the physical. So I'm going to invite you to come forward for prayer, whether it's in the need for confession and repentance or physical healing or whatever healing you or somebody that you know might need. Because Jesus' message to you is relax, relax, relax in my healing authority. One more thing before we go. It's interesting to me that Jesus tells this man to pick up his mat and go home. Why didn't he just say, hey, hey, just discard your mat. I don't care what you do with it. Just whatever. You're done with it. There was some specific, odd little detail. Maybe it was that he didn't want this man to ever forget where he came from. Or he always wanted him to be able to recite his story so that others could be healed by his own narrative. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Jesus told him to do this. And what? 
if he has authority, this man's like, hey, I believe you got all authority to forgive my sin, and I also believe you got all authority on heaven and earth, so I'm just going to do what you say. He just is doing the next right thing. So what is the next right thing that Jesus is just asking you to do in obedience to him? Ask him. And then relax in his healing authority. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give some specific instruction for how we're going to respond to this invitation for you and I. But that's why this is good news. Because this king, he uses his authority to heal and forgive. Thank you, Jesus, for this truth to us. Thank you for being here with us. These are your friends. These are your sons and daughters. These are your beloved. And they, you are welcoming them home. You're welcoming them, welcoming them into the room with you. I pray, Jesus, that there would be healing experience today here today. And I pray that you'd give us boldness and courage to draw near to the throne of grace in ways that maybe we've been reluctant before. As you come forward to do so, there's going to be carpets up front for you to come and kneel or sit or however you want to just posture yourself before Jesus. We invite you to come and receive prayer, as I mentioned earlier, and also you're going to come and receive communion. We heard about the importance of communion and fellowship from the therapist in the article, but here's the idea of communion. It's sharing all things together. And on the night before Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and he took a cup and he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. As often as you take of this, do this in remembrance of me. Then he shared a cup and he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you do it, it's like, it's like you're rehearsing your wedding vows, you and me. You're re-declaring this allegiance that I have for you and that you have for me. Come forward and hear the words, this is the body of Christ, the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Let's respond to him now in that.